the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you who don't know about the show, it's a show about estate planning and elder law. The first part of the show, at least, is. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, with me today, you know, we're accompanied by my wife, Beth, again. I'm here. Okay, and one of our attorneys, Nick. I'm right here. Good afternoon, everybody. Okay, Nick, why don't you say something about yourself? Where did you Where did you go to uh, to high school and so forth? So I went to a Catholic high school in Jordan. I attended that Catholic school from first grade until twelfth. Graduated from uh, it's a small Catholic school. It was run by French priests, so we had to learn to speak French, Arabic, and English at the same time. It's a wonderful experience. Okay, where'd you go to law school? I went to law school up in Massachusetts. So I did my undergrad here in Brooklyn College, but I ended up getting a, a nice, generous scholarship to go to Massachusetts. So it was a wonderful experience for a few years. But of okay. course, I came back to New York City. And you're working mostly out of our Brooklyn office right now, but you do a lot of real estate closings. Correct. Mainly, I've been doing a lot of the real estate closings, as you mentioned, and uh, did a few mortgages and, and a few nice deals. Okay, so what's the question we have? What's what's first on the lineup for today? So our first question is from Michael, and Michael says, Dear Mr. Connors, I am selling a house on Staten Island. I inherited my dad's house 10 years ago, but I have since been renting the house. Eight years ago, I put the house in my daughter's name. Now that I'm selling it, the question is, what should I do? Should I put it back into my name? And looks like Michael's concern is he wants to use the money from the sale to supplement his retirement. Yeah. The one thing about the question is why did the house go into the daughter's name? I mean, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Now, tax-wise, it shouldn't make much of a difference because the tax basis is from the dad's date of death 10 years ago. Now, here's another question, and half the time when we go through this, we find out that uh, somebody made a mistake. When you were renting it out, how were the taxes being paid? Were you paying the taxes? Was your daughter paying the taxes? Were we depreciating from your father's date of death? Those are a lot of questions should be straightened out. What I might do is wait for the closing. Your daughter sets up a trust and she uses the money from the sale of the house to 
by some kind of investment to, as you say, supplement your retirement. But one of the questions, and I just want to get this out, uh, this point across, a lot of times when people inherit a house and they rent it out, they don't get the right tax advice. And if you come to Connors and Sullivan, hopefully we'll give you the right advice. Nick, it's one of the things I always talk about, like when somebody's going to sell or buy a house or whatever, I want them to know the tax consequences because you don't, you don't buy or sell in a vacuum. Correct. It's usually the first conversation we have the clients, you know, with the client when they first contact us regarding a sale or a purchase. We go back through the history of the property and see how it passed. And we ask the right questions to determine the tax liability and also to figure out a ways to decrease the tax bill at closing. Beth, you've got a question too, right? What's your question? Yes, I do. This is from Melissa. Hi, Mike. Can a bank account, either checking or saving, be set up in such a way to avoid probate? Well, that's one of the easiest questions to answer. Yes. Let's say if you have a savings account, the way you avoid probate, you have a joint with somebody else, you have it in trust for someone else. Uh, Checking. A lot of banks don't allow a checking account to be in trust for someone, but a, a lot of banks do, and almost every bank or any bank, I imagine, would allow you to have a joint name on the account. Now, just a couple of cautions or something about this. To have a bank account joint, it's good. It avoids probate. It allows easy access from the account to pay bills or to use it for other purposes, but it does not protect for medical bills. Sometimes you think you got a mother-daughter, they got a $100,000 joint banking account, and mom says, well, if I go to a nursing home, I don't have to worry too much because the account's joint with my daughter and I'm going to lose is half. The nursing home can only take half. It doesn't quite work that well. Uh, under New York State law, the entire account belongs to the parent if the parent goes into a nursing home. Just because the account is joint doesn't mean the account is joint for Medicaid purposes. The entire account, the money in the account belongs to the parent. So there's very little protection from medical bills on having a joint account. The other thing is, and some people don't realize this, let's say you have a joint account with one child, you have a will and you leave everything three equal shares. Well, some people say, well, my will is very clear. Everything I own, everything I own goes in three equal shares. But it it doesn't quite work that way. If uh, a will it's a very limited document. It does not control or cover assets that are in your name alone, that are joint with someone else that has a beneficiary on it. A will only covers the assets in your name alone. It does not cover assets that are joint or in trust for. And, you know, every once in a while, a parent puts all the accounts joint with one of the children. One of the children takes the accounts. The other children say, hey, how much money did dad, how much money did mom leave? And then a fight started because, hey, the account was joint with me. The banker told me it was my account. I didn't have to share it and so forth and so on. So it, it's all right to do joint accounts. Believe me, I encourage you to do it. But just be careful and have a good plan that can be worked out. You know, and if you do want to put a substantial amount of money, you may want to put it in, you got three kids and you want to put one kid in charge to be in, in, in charge, then we might want to do a trust and we can say three equal shares with one child on the account, that child being a trustee who's going to sign an agreement saying everything's going to be divided in three equal shares. Now, I know, Beth, you want to talk about some of the events that we uh, went through last week. And of course, a lot of people ask me about Father Paul from last week. You know, he's going back to Lebanon to try to save his medical mission from Hezbollah. Things are pretty bad over there. So let's He's got our prayers. That's what he's asking for. Just don't forget about him, and don't forget about the Christians in the Middle East who are struggling so so massively. And we do get an occasional check, and if you want to send a check for Father Paul's mission, you can send it to our office at... uh 7408 Fifth Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11209. 7408 Fifth Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11209. Also, one of the people we're talking about, 
talking about today, we're going to be talking about Dr. Warren. Dr. Warren's one of those forgotten guys about the Revolutionary War. And Beth, you and I were talking about getting a Dr. Warren figure on our oh, from our toy soldier it's collectors. It's a secret. We're not saying it's who it's, We're not saying who it's going to. Oh, okay, okay. No, he's a, he, an incredible figure. I think there's so many people that were the beginning, the birth of this nation, that were extraordinary. He's one of them, and we don't hear enough about him. But yes, we found that we found the figure, as you say. So we're right. excited. Are you going to pick it up on Friday? Yes, I will if I can. <laughs> and the author of the book is Christian Despigna, a friend of ours, and. You know, he's he's writing about this forgotten hero of the Revolutionary War. Why is he forgotten? Because he died very early in the war. So that's Dr. Warren, and we're going to be talking about Dr. Warren. Nick, I know you weren't educated in the States. Do you know who Dr. Warren was? And I wouldn't expect you to. It doesn't ring a bell. No, he's, he's one. He was in the, the middle of, of Boston and the fight for independence at the beginning of the Revolutionary War. Okay. The Boston Tea Party. Bunker Hill, so forth. And again, he tragically lost his life at the beginning of the war. So he's not remembered as many as some of the other Revolutionary War heroes who lived through the whole war and and had a part in the founding of this nation after the Revolutionary War. And then we're going to talk a little bit about baseball. Of course, we're out of baseball season right now. We're going to talk a little baseball with Ron Hunt. Ron Hunt was one of my favorite ball players when... uh, I was growing up, and he played for the for the New York Mets in the 60s. He was in the All-Star game twice. He's one of the first. He, he didn't come out of the Met farm system, but he was one of the first rookies from the New York Mets. In retrospect now, you have more respect for his career because he had a tremendous on-base average, which back then people went by batting averages. You know, an on-base average wasn't as important, but he used to walk a higher percentage than average, and he used to get hit with the pitch. He would lean right in there and take the pitch, Pitcher would hit him, he'd pick up the ball, throw it back to the pitcher. Because as he said, if I went to first base and I make a left turn, I stayed in the major leagues. If I made a right <laughs> turn, I was going home and my wife would be mad at me. So we're gonna be talking we're gonna be talking to Ron Hunt at the end of the show. And he's one of our favorite interviews. One of the old New York Mets, love Casey Stengel, love the New York fans. He's got a lot of memories to share. Thank you again for listening to Ask the Lawyer. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, December 2nd at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Brooklyn, New York at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. And then on Thursday, December 5th at the Adria, 2 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718 718- 1-8-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com That's connorsandsullivan.com Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. 
and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A lot of you know we talk about Civil War history an awful lot on this program. And you know, I I probably haven't spent a lot of time on the Revolutionary War, especially since we lost our good friend Tom Fleming. But we're going to try to correct that today. We're going to be talking to Christian Despenia. He's got a book about Dr. Joseph Warren. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Hey, I appreciate you having me on, Michael. Thank you. A lot of people are going to say, well, who is Dr. Warren? So I guess if I'm going to sum up the book in one sentence, I would say before there was George Washington, there was Dr. Joseph Warren. I mean, he is probably the most prolific revolutionary next to Samuel Adams in the 10 years leading up to the Revolutionary War than any other figure I can think of. And I often refer to him in the book as a founding grandfather because his actions against oppressive British policies predate all the titans of the founding generation, like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, all these names that we conjure up in our mind's eye when we think of this founding era, Dr. Joseph Warren was on the scene, involved in all these iconic events in the decade leading up to revolution between 1765 to 1775, from the Stamp Act crisis to the Boston Massacre to the Tea Party to Lexington and Concord to the Battle of Bunker Hill. I mean, he literally was the on-the-ground leader when the founding fathers were at the first Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Where was he born? Where did he live? So Warren's born in June of 1741 in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And in his later years, in his adult life, he lives in Boston. And really, you can say during this 10 years between 1765 and 1775, Boston really is a microcosm of the revolution. Now, he was a medical doctor, so what was his practice, and and how did he get involved in politics? This has always been the big question, right? Because when you look at all the primary source documents, by all rights, Warren should have cast his lot with the Tories, with the Loyalists. It was literally financial suicide for him to join with the Patriot Whigs. And this was always a question I had when I started the research, because any history you'll read about Dr. Joseph Warren and this time period will tell you that Samuel Adams was his mentor. Now, I don't doubt that Adams was a political mentor to Warren, but when we start talking mentor, you have to bring Dr. James Lloyd into the conversation because Dr. James Lloyd was not only his medical mentor and taught Warren medicine, but he was also his earliest mentor. And when Warren enters this orbit of Whig radicalism in the mid-1760s, 
he's already heavily entrenched in his political philosophies and ideologies long before he meets Samuel Adams. And there was some evidence I put forth in the book to underscore the fact that Warren was already his own political entity when he enters this Whig radical movement. Can you describe Boston, let's say, in the 1760s into the 1770s? Right. Well, think about it, right? So Boston sent more than its fair share of people to fight the Seven Years' War, okay? Now, there's a horrendous economic downturn that strikes Boston in 1765 with a string of bankruptcies that almost topple the economy. Every single person in Boston is affected by this, including Warren. And there's a couple of reasons why I point out that Warren shifted towards uh, the radical philosophies of the Whigs and cast his lot with them. And it's because of uh, something that was called the land bank that his grandfather was heavily involved in and suffered financially as a result of this, the same as Samuel Adams' father, who was also involved in this land bank. And in a nutshell, the land bank was a idea that a lot of farmers and less wealthy merchants had because there was such a scarcity of coin in Boston's economy in the late 1730s and early 1740s, so we're going back a few decades, that what they did was they printed notes of currency that were backed by land. And this really upset the political elites, the wealthy, and they reached out to Parliament for help in dissolving this land bank. And as a result, this is an early case of Parliament dipping their fingers into the colonists' pockets and so many men are ruined financially as a result. Now, Warren sees this firsthand because his grandfather suffers for decades after this, is writing letters to the court pleading for relief. So this is an early example of Warren seeing the parliament intervene in the affairs of the Bostonians. And it's one of the reasons why I believe that Warren joins into the Patriot Whigs. Now, again, the Patriot Whigs, what, they, what were they in 1770? So in 1770, it really is Samuel Adams and Joseph Warren who are fighting against these oppressive British policies, right? We can go back to 63 with the Sugar Molasses Act and the Stamp Act. So these are direct taxes that start affecting Boston merchants, everyone. I mean, so when, when we see the Stamp Act passed in 1765, this is a tax placed on everything, paper, legal documents, stamps. Now, you have to realize that Bostonians, more than I think any other colonists, are used to such an autonomous form of government from their charter. Now, when this happens, this is where you start to see policies designed to fight against policies like this. You see Warren getting involved with the Whigs after this, 66, 1767, where they're not buying things from British merchants over in London. So there's sort of this economic boycott that Warren and Samuel Adams take the lead on. By 1770, when the Boston Massacre happens, Warren and Adams are already heavily involved in this fight against these British policies. And they're warning that if they don't do something about them, things are just going to get worse. And we have to realize, look, in the early 1770s, Michael, men like John Hancock, John Adams, they're dropping from this Whig movement. I mean, there's quotes from John Adams and letters he's writing that are stating he wants to retire from politics. 
wants nothing to do with it. John Adams, I mean, John Hancock also removes himself from this Whig scene for a couple of years until things heat up with the Tea Party. So again, when you look at who's fighting these oppressive policies, who are these on-the-ground leaders who are literally agitating against this and not giving up and are in the fight, it's guys like Samuel Adams and Dr. Joseph Warren. Let's move up to Concord, Lexington and Concord. What's happening and where's Dr. Warren? Okay, so at this point, Dr. Warren is living in the North End. Now, I found evidence proving that Warren actually lived in a completely different home than history has told us for the last 200 years. So when Warren is dispatching Paul Paul Revere and William Dawes on this midnight ride, it's actually being done from a completely different location than history has told us. Now, the important thing about this, and what I think a lot of people don't realize is that Warren is at the vast of an intricate spy network, and this predates George Washington's famous spy network. Intelligence is being filtered to Dr. Joseph Warren from all walks of life, whether it's a stable boy, whether it's other contacts. I mean, we have letters upon letters that Warren is writing to Samuel Adams, to John Adams, to John Hancock, who are now at the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia, talking about this intelligence network. We have new evidence from a diary that was published by the New England Historic Genealogical Society, the Hannah Crocker Mather Diaries, where she's talking about being instructed by her father to deliver sensitive intelligence and papers only to Dr. Joseph Warren. So it's because of this intelligence network that really Warren has his finger on the pulse. And when this shot heard around the world happens on April 19, 1775, it's really because of Warren's activities. Was Warren committed to independence? What was it, What was his idea among independence, you know, in 1775? We know that at this First Continental Congress, the delegates are talking about olive branch petitions to the king. Now, the important thing is is that we actually have a quote from one of these loyalists talking that in 1768, that Warren was talking about independence and was trying to recruit people to the movement and that their goal was independence. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone as early as 1768 talking about independence. And this is what Dr. Joseph Warren was talking about as early as 1768. Again, he's such a radical revolutionary, and it's just amazing to me that history has really forgotten him. The fact that he's, his name is not mentioned with these other titans of the revolution is, is really a shame because, again, this is not canonizing Warren or overstating his influence or his import or his importance Warren really was one of the most important revolutionaries in this movement leading to independence. Well, I think one of the major reasons we don't hear a lot, what happened to him? How did he die? Warren is nominated a major general on June 14, 1775, by the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. Which is before the Declaration of of Independence. I I just want to set that for people. Right, which is a year. And this this is part of the problem, Michael. You know, a lot of times I'll bring up... John Adams, and I'm getting off the subject just slightly here. Go ahead. John Adams, the book by David McCullough, right? Everybody knows this book. If John Adams had died 
right after he signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776, he would have been six years older than Warren. He would have been a year older than him. And McCullough's book doesn't even finish through chapter two. So these, this is one of the reasons why we don't know much about Warren, because he's not part of this later triumphalist phase of the American Revolution. He dies a year before the signing of the Declaration of Independence as a British subject of King George III and a traitor to the mother country. Now, when Warren shows up at this Battle of Bunker Hill on June 17, 1775, he's fighting as a volunteer, both General Israel Putnam and Colonel William Prescott, who were the two highest ranking officers at that battle, both defer to Warren and offer to give him command of the battlefield. And Warren declines both offers saying, I'm only here to fight as a volunteer, knowing that these men have much more military and fighting experience than he does. And the shame about the whole thing is, is that that day there are three assaults from the British soldiers that try and penetrate these fortified lines on the redoubt at Breed's Hill. And on the third assault charge, the British are successful. There's a bayonet charge. Unfortunately, Warren is literally the last provincial soldier to leave this field of battle because he's trying to get all the men on the sole route of retreat and escape to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And unfortunately, in the last seconds of that retreat, he shot through the face and killed instantly. Which is the reason I guess we don't hear about him now. What would you say in summary? Why should we remember Dr. Warren? Well, think about it. So let's talk about his accomplishments, if we could put it into a nutshell, right? One of the most important things that Warren did while he was alive was pen the Suffolk Resolves. This was a declaration of rights and grievances that he penned and that was adopted unanimously by the First Continental Congress. So after the Boston Tea Party, London and Parliament punished Boston by closing the port of Boston and passing what they called the Coercive Acts, the Intolerable Acts. And one of the first things this did on June 4th, June 1st, 1774, was shut down the port of Boston. So basically, this is a stranglehold on the Boston economy. Warren in September of 74 writes these Suffolk Resolves and on one of his lesser famous rides, Paul Revere is dispatched by Warren to the First Continental Congress. Now, think about it. You have about 56 delegates assembled at this First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. They're all carting their own prejudices. Boston's being viewed as a problem colony that's causing these issues. Nobody's on the same page. And miraculously, they read Warren's Suffolk Resolves. And they adopt them unanimously, which helps immediately create a harmonious unification at this First Continental Congress. So that's why sometimes I laugh when people say, well, the founding fathers, they didn't know who Joseph Warren was. Wrong. They all knew who he was from the Suffolk Resolves. But let's go even further. Warren's not just a medical doctor who's well known in the town of Boston because he's giving medical advice. Look, he's there for the his patient's most intimate moments when, when a loved one passes away, when there's a child born. So not only are people putting their trust in him medically, they're putting their trust in him politically. Warren is at the Boston Massacre. He's performing autopsies on the dead. He is one of the main planners of the Boston Tea Party, which he never gets credit for. Again, he pens those Suffolk resolves. He delivers two fiery Boston massacre orations. He's penning political tracks 
polemical arguments, talking about Governor Francis Bernard and this British oppression. It's one of the reasons he got Francis Bernard called out of office of the governorship and recalled back to London. He's planning and involved in everything around Lexington and Concord. He's at Bunker Hill. You know, it's one of the great what-if questions in history, Michael. What if Warren had not been on the scene? What if he'd never dispatched Paul Revere on his midnight ride? Would that shot around the world ever have happened? Would Bunker Hill have happened had he not been the on-the-ground leader for these 60 days? And a lot of people often refer to this period as the 60 days between Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. I mean, he was involved in every single major insurrectionary event in and around the town of Boston between 1765 and 1775. Chris, the name of your book is Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution last lost hero. I'm sorry, lost hero. Where can they get the book? It's on Amazon. It's You can get it at Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores. Okay, well, listen, thank you for writing this book because I think it is a part of history that, that, that has been forgotten. We do have a lost hero. I appreciate it, Michael. And it really, I mean, again, he he really is one of the uh, more deserving characters that have been lost to history that should have a light shined on his actions and his contributions to independence. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you so much, Michael. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, Call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org. Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. 
Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. When I was a kid going to the Met games in the Polo Grounds, one of my favorite baseball players was Ron Hunt. And later on the next year in 1964, he was the first Met elected to start in an All-Star game. And that's our next guest on Connors Corner, Ron Hunt. Welcome to the show, Ron. Mike, it's good to be on the show. Thank you very much for calling. Thank the New York fans for remembering me because I'll never forget them. Going back, 1963, spring training. How many second basemen were in camp that year? Seven. And who ended up being the starting second baseman? Well, we broke camp and I was number three. And then Casey uh, kicked somebody off the team and the first baseman off the team and spring training for going to the press and arguing with the press over a contract rather than Casey. Casey had a little meeting. He said, look, if you got problems with me, you come to me. So about the, I don't know, we were in Philadelphia, I guess. I was coming down the runway, and I seen Casey, and I said, Ron Hunt, number 33, second base, because he remembered numbers, not names. He said, yes, yeah, so what can I do for you? I said, well, I like to play, and I remember what you said in spring training, coming to you with a problem and not going to the press. I said, Larry Burrow's not doing a very good job offensively or defensively. Maybe it'd be a good time to see me play. He said, son, you want to play that bad? I said, yes, sir. He said, you play tomorrow. So we went into Cincinnati, and I faced Joe Nuxaw. I went two for two off him uh, and uh, a reliever. Uh, I went four for four. Casey uh, went on the air. At the time there, there was a microphone by the dugout. He went on the air before the game and said, yeah, I knew Cincinnati was the minor league outfit. The kid's batting 1,000, and all he can put on the board is 999. Yeah, they didn't have four digits. <laughs> now, the guy, one of the guys who played against you in Cincinnati was Pete Rose, who beat you for the rookie of the year that year. Yeah, he beat me out because I had better stats than he did. Yep. But what the hell? <laughs> you know? Well, you know, I'll tell you something. I don't know if you know baseball reference, but, you know, they analyze everything and so forth. And they agree that you had better stats that year. Well, stats are stats, I guess. All right, now uh, we we hustled back in those days. Today, they didn't even, don't even have to run a damn ball out. I, I haven't watched a full game yet. I watched four, I watched six innings of a game, and then uh, the little second baseman for Houston, uh, he hit a ball and he didn't run it out, and I thought, what the hell? He ain't running. What the hell's going on? <laughs> Well, let me ask you something. Casey Stengel, you're one of the one of the guys who alive today who played for Casey. What was it like playing for Casey Stengel? Casey Stengel, you didn't lie to him, and he didn't lie to you. He took care of you if you took care of him. And like I said in the beginning, I was a I was a number three or three second baseman. I went to him with knowledge, and I produced. In fact, later on in the season, we went into St. Louis, and Robert Gibson was pitching. And he come up to, I was on the on-deck circle. He said, 8.33, I need some time. I need to warm up a pitcher. So I busted my shoelaces, got a bat, got got this bat, that got that bat, took my time. And he said, okay, 33, go ahead. And I hear this voice, Duke Snyder saying, Ronnie. Duke Snyder took me under his wing when the other guys didn't want to listen to him. I listened to him. Anyway, he said, uh, you're going to get drilled. I said, that's all what? <laughs> so Gibson drills me. I go down to first, and Joe Cunningham, I just went to a, Function the other day, the old Browns game. St. Louis Browns. St. Louis Browns, yeah. Joe Cunningham was there, and I said, I told him the story. He said, yeah, I remember that. I walked up to Joe, and he said, you all right? I said, yeah, tell us, let's go warm up. He said, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> so Casey was good to me, and I was good to him. In fact, in the fourth year when he got hurt, 
he come to me and asked me if I would play third base. I said, yeah, if you're asking me, I'll play it. If you're telling me, no. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you're going to tell me to play it because you want me to, I'll play it. But otherwise, I don't want to go back to third because I was in the minors at third. I was in the majors at second base. He said, that's good enough for me. So he left me at second base. And then he got hurt, and then Westbrook traded me. Or Mets traded me and didn't even call me. I had four good years with them. I was runner-up to Pete Rose. I was an all-star. 64-66, I busted up my shoulder in 65, I guess, and came back in two months when they thought I was done. But, hell, we needed four years in the majors to be eligible for pension, and that was only three for me. So I busted my butt to get back in the lineup. And when the Mets traded me and didn't even call me, I thought, well, told Jackie, we're going to play for the money and the fans, and that's what we did. In fact, when I was invited back to the Mets uh, organization, finally, uh, the last month, the 8th, 9th, and 10th, the 8th, we had 60-some-odd people show up at a, a bar where I hadn't seen them in 10, 15 years, and they remembered me, I remembered them. And we went to the ballpark the 9th and 10th, and the fans remembered me, and I remembered them, and I took them some autographed pictures, and I gave the police pictures, and I just don't forget the fans. And they don't forget me either. So I love them. No, the fans who saw you play, you know, they remember you because you did give 100%. Well, I was a working class type person. I wasn't polished. I just went out there and tried to do things the way I could do them, get them done. But I hustled all the time. And I gave them 100%. I think that's what they liked about me. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is I think some people don't realize how good a ball player you were. Because, in part, you had an extremely good on-base percentage. Well, yeah, but uh, that was... My stats were very simple. I hit the ball. Uh, I wanted credit for getting the runner from second to third with one out with nobody out. Getting him in from third with with one out. And that was times at bat. So I I had about 30 or 40 of those a year. And I had to argue with the Mets on contract. Because that was considered to me part of the game, and it took my it took my batting average down to two seventy when it could have been close to three hundred. But of course, your on base percentage didn't just count your you know your hits. How many times did you used to get hit a season, hit by pitch? Oh, well, that, that was with the Giants, I guess. I got hit uh, two hundred forty three times, fifty times in one year when I started hitting me because I was taking pitches for guys like. Let's see, who was that? Uh, Mays, Mantle, Mays. McCovey. Uh, McCovey, Davenport, Jimmy Ray Hart, taking pitchers, pitches for them so they could see what the pitcher was throwing. And the pitcher decided that they were wasting pitches on me, so they hit me and put me on first base. And then with the, with the Expos, when I was traded to the Expos, Gene Mock come up and sent somebody up to me and said, Hey, would you play for Mock? I said, I'll play for any manager as long as he lets me play. Because Mock and I had a little problem with, he was with Philadelphia and I was with the Mets. He sicked somebody on me. And I spiked him and he spiked me. And Mock never did believe his, I knew that. But he lied to me. And, but anyway, I didn't care. Any manager to let me play, I'll play for him. But I, I liked the Mets. I really, the Polo Grounds was a great ballpark for me. I liked the old ballparks. No, well, it was, you know, the ballparks had character, you know, and then they got to the, the cookie-cutty ballparks all over the place. Now they're getting back to different parks. Well, how do you like City Field? Oh, that's all right. I, I wouldn't want to play there. 
I don't like uh, the sun. I don't like the wind. Uh, the Shea Stadium was a good field, and the fans needed good parking, so they 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 they, they needed Shea Stadium. But I like Shea Stadium. I like the uh, Dodger Stadium, the old ballpark. I like the well, San Francisco was a pain in the butt. You couldn't catch fly balls there. Casey said one time, we don't need infield practice, we need pop-up practice. <laughs> and I, we, we all agreed with him. <laughs> now, let me ask you something. You mentioned Duke Snyder. What kind of influence was Duke Snyder on your career? Well, Duke, uh, Duke offered it to somebody else, and the, the guy didn't take it. I said, hell, I'll take it. I'll listen to you. So anytime I come in, I just listen. He'd tell me how the, the certain pitchers like to pitch you in certain situations. How they like to, what they like to throw, and then uh, how to play them according to according to his way of thinking, and I just did it. And uh, every time I come off the field, there was a place sitting, there was a place next to Duke for me to sit down, and I shut up and I listened. All right, and now Duke Snyder is one of the many Hall of Famers you played with. Can you name some of the other Hall of Famers you are on the same field with? Oh, let's see. There was uh, Willie Mays, the first baseman. McCovey. McCovey. I got Parkinson's. I'm suffering from Parkinson's, so I'm having a little hard time remembering. Okay. But uh, I remember those two guys preferably because they they give you 100% all the time. And McCovey, he was a he was a leader. He 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 undressed Mays one time for being late. And I heard him, and I thought, well, hell, if he can do that, he's a good man. He undressed Willie Mays? Yeah, he he talked to Mays come in late, undressed him. I mean, he cussed him. He said, God damn it, get get your ass together and get here on time. You're one of the teammates. You get here when you're supposed to, not when you want to. (laughs) And I thought that was great. All right, now you, you played in a lot of different cities. You played, obviously, with the Mets. Then with the Dodgers and the Giants and Montreal, well, the Dodgers, a little bit with St. Louis. Besides New York, what was one of your more. favorite places? I wish I could have given them a little bit more game because I hurt my I hurt my groin, and my grandpa died that year and made a mess out of things. I wish I could have given them a little bit more. But the Giants, I gave them 100%. I was able to give them 100%. I gave the Expos 100%, and the Mets, I gave 100% too. And then when they traded me to the Cardinals, I found out why they did that because we had about seven, eight games left with the, when I was with the Expos, with the Cardinals at the finals. They wanted me on the bench, so they traded for me and put me on the bench. Didn't give me a chance to play, just put me on the bench. The ball player's making the money today. If you had a three sixty-eight on base percentage today, which is what you did, and back then batting averages were a lot lower than they were today, uh, you'd be making, I don't know, $10 million a year. Do you have any regrets that you weren't born 30 years later? My wife would have spent it all. <laughs> we're going on 60, we're going on 58 years, September 16th this year, together with the same woman. How many years? My money says I was 18 and I ain't got no smarter. <laughs> no, nope, but I don't know what I'd do with all that money. I imagine she'd know what to do with it. The balls are different. Uh, the, the ball is different. Uh, the ball is different. The bat is different. Hell, the balls that Casey used to say I used to hit, not too hard, not too easy, just over the infield, not to the outfield. For a base hit, be carrying to the outfield. I couldn't hit home runs. What you? Add? I was taught to hit the ball hard, 
hit it low, hit it on the ground, hit a line drive, somebody's got to get in front of it. On the ground, somebody's got to get to it, somebody's got to catch it, somebody's got to throw it. There's always room for air there. After your career was, was over, what did you do and, and what are you doing today? Well, after I was done with baseball, I, I, I had a liquor store, sporting goods store in Wentzville. Then I, then I <clears throat> started coaching Little League Baseball. And then I took a team. I had an organization, the Ron Hunt Eagles Baseball Association. I did for 18 years. We had 23 kids live with us. Had an infield out in my front yard. We played 100 ball games to 200 ball games a summer. Did it for about six to ten weeks, and never hurt one arm, and got 80, 80, 85 to 88 percent of them in college with some kind of scholarship help. Very good. Did you ever think about going into professional baseball as a coach or a manager? No. Why? They wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> now listen again. You know, uh, some of us saw on TV, you know, when you came back to City Field, uh, other younger people say, well, who is that guy? Who's Ron Hunt? And if somebody asked me, I'd say he was the, the, the first all-star for the New York Mets. He, he played hard and he gave you money's worth every time you went to a ballpark. And those of us old Met fans, we thank you for that. Well, that was the 60 or 80, 65, 65, 65 people that I was with. You were one of them, weren't you? Yes, I was. Okay, and uh, we uh, we got together and we, were, we kind of played the, the tapes over in our heads and it was good seeing them and some of them couldn't make it, so I called them and said hi and some of them are in worse shape than I am, but I still remember something and I'll never forget the Mets fans and the New York Mets at the, the, the time that I played there and the association was good. They treated us, Casey treated us good. I'll never forget the fans. I'll never forget you, Rod. I'll never forget you. Nope, and the fans won't forget you either. Ron Hunt, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. My pleasure. Thank you. Tell the fans I love them. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and God bless them too. All right. Thanks again. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, in your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. When it does- Desperate parent calls YCS, seeking help for their child with special needs. 
We are there to answer the call. Our staff provides compassionate care to children affected by trauma, autism, or developmental disabilities. Can you help us provide the services needed to keep families together? Find out how you, your company, or organization can volunteer. Learn more at YCS.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Yeah, Okay, so, you know, we learned a little bit about a history from Dr. Warren and a little bit about baseball from Ron Hunt. And, Beth, I know you wanted to talk about some of the events we've been at over the last few weeks. Yes, we we had so much fun at the Doodle one. Getting um, well, the Franciscans. You're going to know more about it now. But Father Paul was with us, who's a Franciscan, right? And of course, Joe Piscopo and our friend Tony LaBianco were there. And I mean, Joe Piscopo again. I, you know, I really didn't know until we started working with Joe on some things. I really didn't jo- know Joe that was as talented as he is. I didn't realize that he was such a great musician. He is. He comes alive on stage, and um. He obviously he can sing because I think almost everybody knows that. But he plays the drums, he plays the guitar. He is um, he's very very good. And you know, I years ago was on stage, but he's a, the consummate performer. He is um, disciplined, and he does things to please the audience. It's not just about him. And um, he ended up going on very late in the evening, and it it didn't it didn't matter as far as his performance. He was great. So um, the utmost respect and thanks. I know everybody was grateful for, um, to him because they were trying to raise money to to get food for the poor, and it was wonderful. And of course, I think. Um, Mr. Katzmatidis was the one that was, you know, our our host for the evening for the most part, and and like you said, our friend Tony and his wife Elise Lobianco. I mean, it was just it was a lovely, lovely evening, and so many of the people from Connors and Sullivan were there, and Nick was on the show earlier, and it was his birthday party, so it was so nice, so nice. You know what, if you're listening to this program, I strongly suggest, why don't you try Joe Piscopo, you know, Monday through Friday, 6 o'clock in the morning till 10. I think he's got the best show on, on drive time in the morning right now in the New York area. I could be Absolutely. prejudiced, but that's my opinion. <laughs> we might be, but I don't care. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> All right. Now, we also did, there's also event the Guild for Exceptional Children, and, and Arlene is in the room. Arlene, can you tell us what the Guild for Exceptional Children, what's it about? Sure. Um, the Guild for Exceptional Children is an organization that's been around for probably 61 years. Uh, we handle and we uh, have residents for developmentally disabled children and uh, adults. We go from six years old, three years old, up to 93 years old. Uh, people don't think of uh, developmentally uh, elderly people, but it's a huge problem now because we don't have enough care for them in New York State. Um, we had a wonderful time at Gargiulio's. There were almost 400 people there. Uh, and the, the best part was this year we honored the siblings of our individuals. And it was so wonderful to watch them dancing with their brothers and sisters. And, you know, I, I was a former president of the Guild. And the most important thing is that I'm a mom. My daughter, Danielle, she's 33 years old and she's a, a ray of sunshine, high functioning. And But she loves her brothers and she loves her family at the Guild. 
And I, you know, I'm here at Connors and Sullivan. And I, I get a lot of questions about special needs trusts. And I tell people, come and talk to us because it's so important. I did that for my daughter, Danielle. And when you don't have those things in, in place, there's a worry. There's a cloud over your head. And, you know, I encourage people, come and talk to us because it's, it's very, very important um, to take care of our kids. Listen, I cannot tell our audience enough about what a wonderful family oh, you have. If they were now, it's just it's a wonderful, wonderful family. You know, you were on with your mother talking about Norway and World War Two, and and your the love and the the pride of of who who you are, your, your family. It's just yeah. wonderful, wonderful people. So y'all are. You're what America's all about. So God bless you. God, God bless your whole family. Okay, now we've got a few seconds left in our show. If you want to learn more about estate planning and elder law, again, we're doing seminars, you know, in the beginning of December. We're going to be at the Greenhouse Cafe in Bay Ridge. We're going to be at in Bayside at the Adria Hotel. Matt's going to give us the times and places in, in a few seconds on the show. But thank you for listening to our show. If you have any questions, please give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We don't charge for the first meeting. You can always come in and talk something over to, with us. There's no one right answer to start, but if we talk it over, hopefully we can come to some kind of solution. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, December 2nd at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and then on Thursday, December 5th at The Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens, at 11 a.m. 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.